Want to become an AI trailblazer in the product world? Pragmatic Institute's newest workshop, AI for Product Professionals, is your ticket to generative AI mastery. In this hands-on training, learn to master ChatGPT and prompt engineering to transform your product strategies, rapidly create content, optimize workflows, and make razor-sharp product decisions fueled by data. Don't just keep up with the AI revolution. Lead it. Seats are limited. Enroll today at pragmaticinstitute.com slash AI workshop. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris at Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. How many times have you been sitting there working hard at your desk and someone comes through, maybe they looked at your roadmap, maybe they're just thinking out and they're like, yeah, this is all great, but you know what? We need to really be innovative. Like, great, great, thanks. First of all, who disagrees, right? Who's like, no, I don't want to be innovative. That's lame. But like, what does that mean? How do we do it? And how do we make it work for our business so that we're not just, you know, that it's innovation that delivers impact and results both to our customers and to our business. So it's a problem and it's a reality that a lot of us face. And so today I have on the show to help us sort of unwrap all of that and give us some good, solid, actionable advice as he is known to do. None other than our very own pragmatic instructor, Will Scott. Welcome, Will. Great to be here, Rebecca. Thank you. All right. There are probably still a few people out there who have not had the opportunity to learn from you or maybe not heard one of our other podcasts. So for those, give a little background origin story of Will so they know sort of the context you bring to these conversations. Well, I'm a native of the UK. I've now spent the last 20 years in Texas. So I'm uh, some kind of nationality. I'm not sure which one I am. <laughs> and prior to being an instructor at Pragmatic Institute, I spent an almost 30-year career across B2B and B2C, big companies, small companies, hardware, software, services, and staff. So, you know, a few gray hairs around the temple. And I've done just about every job there is in product marketing and product management along the way. So that's kind of my uh, war stories and uh, a few scars in the back as well. So you have a diverse experience and there's no question that you've been charged to be innovative, right? So let's talk first about like, what do we mean by innovation? It can sometimes feel like a fuzzy word. Yeah, innovation is to come up with something new. I mean, at the simplest level, I could get into dictionary definitions, but as a product manager and, and leading product managers, we often charge them with go innovate. But I struggle with that a little bit because there is many, many different ways in which we could innovate. And so we need some level of structure and framework to think about how we should innovate uh, before we go charging off and dreaming up the next great idea. Yes. Right. So let's talk about that. So if you are working with someone and they just got the thou shall innovate decree from above, how would you help them structure their thinking? I think the first step is let's sort of catalog all the different ways in which we could innovate. Let's, mm. let's put some, some nouns before the word innovate and see if we can start providing some structure. So, you know, there's many down here and you know, I've got, you know, 13 or 14 or 15 and some articles that I wrote. But let's say, for example, we think of product innovation. That's probably the one we know the most, right? We're going to innovate on product. We're going to develop new features and new functions for existing product. That's absolutely fine. But maybe we've got uh, enhancement innovation. Maybe we're enhancing 
the product for different users. Or maybe we've got line extension innovation. That's where we're creating versions of the product for different use cases. Maybe we've got value engineering innovation. That's where we're looking to take out costs from whatever it is that we do. Maybe there's ecosystem innovation. Maybe we're innovating as a result to serve the ecosystem that we work with, whether it's our partners or our collaborative, you know, software or hardware partners or what have you. So I think the first step is let's catalog all the different ways in which we could innovate. Let's put some nouns before the word innovate and see if we can come up with some kind of framework to think about that. Well, then what I like about even just the ones you threw out there, I think often people think of innovation as like, I will now use AI, right? I will use a technology that the innovation has got to be the technology we use to create something. And when you talk about, you know, the sort of ecosystem or delivery, or there is lots of ways throughout your product and the product ecosystem that you can innovate. And I think it's important to sort of spend some time thinking through all of those. Precisely. I think that's the, uh, you know, to use the, the well-trodden phrase in pragmatic, what problem are we trying to solve? Yeah. Go innovate. My retort would be to what end? For what purpose? For what outcome are we looking to achieve? Not just we got to sprinkle a bit of AI in there. And I'm mm-hmm. sure there's many product managers out there who are being charged at this very moment <laughs> yes. by the management to go sprinkle a bit of AI in their product, whatever it might be. And that's the wrong way about it. That's a, I wouldn't even say it's an inside out view. It's almost like a technology perspective to, yeah. to begin innovation and, and incorrect. So it sounds like then the first thing is thou shalt innovate. Then it's okay. All right. What are we trying to accomplish with that? Right. Are we losing market share? Are we too big and clunky and we're too expensive? Like what is the problem? In this case, it is an internal problem, right? What is the business problem that we believe we are trying to solve? Precisely. Precisely. And I think there's a few different ways, or I like think the lenses, we can look at that list of innovation. I call them innovation vectors. You know, a vector is, it's an engineering term, it's a math term for a direction that we're going, right? So what are the available innovation vectors to us? That's step one. Let's list them all out. And step two, how might we assess those innovation vectors to see what's ideal for us or what's the most appropriate for us? And I think there's a few different ways in which we can view those vectors to determine, you know, to, to continue the analogy that the path we're going to take, the, the route we're going to take over that, that rocky terrain of product innovation. Yes. Yes. All right. So we've said, great. Yes, I'd love to innovate. Let's talk about the problems we're solving and let's consider the different vectors, as you said. And I know there's a great article that you've written that we'll link to in here that talks about 13 or so of them, but let's dig into a few of them and really what they are, some examples and how they might apply to our listeners. Exactly. So I think the first thing we need to think about is, first of all, when we look at those innovations, let's take some examples, right? Let's take, for example, a company I used to work for, disruptive innovation, right? Disruptive innovation is when a company gets into a new category, a new category for them and attempts to engage customers on a different level or Mm. via a different set of products. So a company I used to work for is Cisco, well-known for routers and switches, very mature market. Some would say saturated, certainly not a high growth market at that point. And so they got into telecommunications. They got into cloud computing. They got into, they were the first ones out there with their telepresence offering. Now, to be sure, all of those were designed to drive the sale of routers and switches, but mm-hmm. they were disrupting the marketplace by moving beyond what was their traditional sort of stable of offerings. You know, I think that, that's, a, that's a good example of that. And I think that's a classic example of innovation, right? We often think of whether they're new to the category or they've created the category, right? When you think of like Uber or DoorDash or Airbnb, right? Like some that you classically think it feels like they created, they were solving an existing problem that everybody had 
but in a different way. They made a different mark. You no longer compared them to the other way it was solved, right? And I think that was the telepresence piece, which is so ubiquitous now, but it was not when Cisco started, right? It feels like a different piece. Exactly. Uh, and I think that's a that's an example, like that's a classic example of one. If we compare that to another large hardware manufacturer, around at the same time I was working for uh, Cisco, right? Let's look at Dell. Hmm. Dell charged down a value engineering innovation. That's all about improving the cost value ratio. Maybe it's reducing those production costs or maybe it's adding new value, right? And that's what Dell did is they created that just-in-time manufacturing to mm -hmm. really drive out the cost. So that was a completely different innovation vector for another hardware company that took that. We might even take another one. Let's look at process innovation, right? I think Toyota is a great example of mm. this, where they enhanced and developed their production process to develop products faster and cheaper and things like that. So these are all different examples of, of different ways in which companies could innovate. In all of those examples, these guys were creating, I won't say capital goods, but large expensive piece of hardware, but they chose different paths upon which to innovate based on their circumstances. Oh, so if I have a lot of vectors I can consider, what are some of the factors that help me decide whether that is the right match for us? Right. Well, I think the first thing is, and you and I were chatting before, and I hope this is not heresy, but we are primarily driven by market If the market podcast drive. just stops, then, then we well, all know no. that this is too far. <laughs> too it's far. too far. I, I know, I, you know, we're all driven by market problems, yes. absolutely. But there are commercial realities yes. that we might also yep. have to deal with, with our innovation vectors that are not necessarily directly to do with the end consumer of the product. So it's not all about, in my view, product enhancement. So I think one of the things, one of the lenses in which we can view innovation is how do we intend to grow as a company? And of course, there's a large range of different. I talk about this in my article as well. So let's say for a few examples, product-led growth is probably the most contemporary one that we all know, right? Product-led growth, we lead with some freemium model or some cheaper model, and then we sort of grow people up there. That will require us to innovate in certain ways. Maybe we are integrating with complementary products. Maybe we're really focusing on user experience. Maybe we're dripping out that functionality so people get so far with the product and say, you know what, I love this product. All my data's in there. I've got used to it. I want that net new functionality. I'm now going to put my credit card and pay, right? So the innovation vectors we choose for product-led growth might look very different if we, again, I'm going to go to Cisco, for example, is partner-led growth. If we are growing through our partners, then we may want to innovate on our products such that we create hooks for our partners to connect in their products and their services because our growth strategy is via, you know, partner-led growth, for example. Mm. Another one which I, I, I really like is network-led growth. You know, the, probably the best example of this, and I'm definitely dating myself here, is the fax machine, right? If there's only one fax machine in the world, then that person gets zero value. But every incremental <laughs> fax machine that gets added, people get exponential value, yeah. right? So if we're trying to create the network of, you know, different solutions, for example, or different products, then we might choose to innovate in a different way completely. Maybe there's, you know, today's world, maybe there's some kind of reward system, re you know, mm -hmm. refer a friend, mm -hmm. get a reward, those sort of things. So the first lens, I think, is... How do we intend to grow? Because that will absolutely inform which innovation vectors are the most appropriate for us. That makes a lot of sense. So thinking about our go-to-market sort of growth models, right? And, and lining that up, it's a great way of doing it. What other sort of lenses? When we think of all the different vectors and how we determine the right one, what other lenses? 
Well, I think the other one is a classic one, which is where we look at the job that is going to be done. I'm using that phrase on purpose. I think the jobs to be done framework is a good framework, right? But we look at what job is the end user trying to accomplish? What outcome are they trying to achieve? What they're not trying to achieve, and sometimes product management and sake is, I'm trying to print a report. That's not what they're trying to achieve. They're trying to achieve a job well done and a bonus and a raise and they're getting the slap on the back or whatever it might be, right? So I quite like the JTB framework of decomposing jobs. You know, if anyone spent some time looking at it, people spend time defining what job they're trying mm-hmm. to do, locating the different resources they're going to need. They're going to prepare, they're going to execute, they're going to monitor, they're going to iterate. So another way we can look at innovation is to decompose the outcome that our, the end users are trying to achieve and then determining what's the most appropriate innovation vector. Maybe it's an experiential one. Maybe they're just going to have a different experience using it. Maybe that's the innovation vector that we choose. Or maybe it is, you know, we're going to integrate with a, a you know, with a, an adjacent complementary product. So that's another way I think we can look at it is decomposing and deconstructing the job to be done and then thinking which innovation vectors attach most appropriately to which aspect of the job you're trying to enhance or improve. Well, and I think that that one is really important for product managers, because I think once we have a product, we sometimes forget to go all the way back. And we think of the job to be done as the job they're like within the system. The job they're trying to do is load, you know, is create an invoice in this system to do it. Yes, that's not what they're doing, right? But that's right. our universe, right? We've started to get defined by that. And it's when we can, we take the time to peel back the layers to like, okay, wait, let's zoom out. Why are they in here in the first place? What are right. they trying to do is where you can really revolutionize the experience, to your point, of your customer and the way they see you. I mean, that is yeah. fundamentally what some of the ones we named earlier did, right? What is Uber? And like they understood that when they zoomed back out, that was the problem is they needed to get somewhere on demand. And exactly, yeah. it wasn't, and, and, right? Yeah, and I, th- I think sometimes product managers conflate the outcome someone wants to achieve with the feature they want. And these yes. are two different things, yep. right? It's not about features they want. It's about the outcome they want to achieve. It may happen that they're going to require a certain feature to achieve that. But that's, I think that's where we've got to ground ourselves, not just stop at a list of features, right? That's the last thing we want to do is just make this, you know, make ourselves into feature factions. Then we end up with bloatware, right? That's got yeah. the features yeah. that no one uses. <laughs> yes. Well, so, okay. So we need to dig in deep and understand our business, right? How we're looking to grow our realities, right? Which are important. Let's not pretend. We need to remind ourselves of the true needs of our customer, like outside of our system, the problems they're solving, the jobs to be done. And I know there's a third one. Yeah. The third one is, and I'm not going to claim any kind of authorship of this, is Jeffrey Moore's work, which he wrote about in the fantastic book, Dealing with Darwin, where he discusses innovation types as a function of market life cycle. So what he proposes in that, and I think, you know, really well written. It's an old book now, but it's still true today as it was 20 years ago, is the kinds of innovation we do when we're in a, uh, well, maybe I should step back. And so Jeffrey Moore basically decomposes the market into a series of phases of life cycle. He basically calls this, you know, the pre-Main Street, the, uh, the early market. Then we've got Main Street and then we've got laggards at a very high level. He actually has, you know, a, a couple more levels within that. And then what he proposes is there's a very big chasm. This is the genesis of his book, Crossing the Chasm, between 
early adopters and Main Street. And it has many, many companies fail to make that jump. But you can read across the chasm if anyone's interested in that. But when it comes to innovation, what he suggests is that when we are in an early sort of pre-chasm market, what we're looking to do is real disruptive innovation. What we're trying to do at this point is capture that market share. We're not bothered about money at this point. Mm. I, I think a great example is let's let's look at the AI wars going on right now. That, that this is all about land grab. Yep. You know, yep. I, I read recently that uh, OpenAI is dropping some seven hundred thousand dollars a day paying oh, for yeah. compute capacity for all those free accounts that they're giving out. They don't care about revenue right now. This is about land grab. This is about mind share. And, and so. All of those companies out there, whether it's, it's Google or Microsoft or, or Claude or what have you, are all looking to disrupt with net new features and really grab that mindshare. Whereas if we move into Main Street, right, which is a much later on market, then what Jeffrey Moore says, here's where we're looking to make ongoing enhancements. Here's where we're looking to do integration innovation, maybe acquisition innovation. Mm. Maybe here's where the value engineering comes in. Here's maybe where we're taking out those costs of production or what have you. Whereas if we go and look at that laggard market where the product's sort of in decline at that point, now we're looking for renewal innovation. How do we get people to renew or move to the replacement product, which of course is to sign another book, The Famous Innovator's Dilemma. How do we get people to move off the cash cow to something new, recognizing that at some point the cash cow is going to, you know, sadly die sort of thing. So those are the, uh, there's another way of thinking about it is Moore's innovation by life cycle type. And I think that's the sort of like, Rebecca, when I think about those three lenses, when we mm -hmm. place those three lenses on top of one another, and we take that view of the different innovation mm -hmm. vectors, it can be much better informed and hopefully answer in a much more thoughtful way the question, go innovate. Now, yeah. now we can think about it in, in the structured way. To, to what end? Uh, and these are some useful tools to do that. I think it's also helpful in understanding all of those lenses in talking back, in presenting back to your organization, your innovation and why, right? Where are these pieces? I want to spend a little bit time on Main Street and decline because I think the vast majority of our, you know, audience sits in there to some degree, right? But when we think about Main Street, one of the ones you talked about, which we all, every listener is like, I know, Rebecca, you love m and I do. I love it. It's super yeah. fascinating. But I don't think people necessarily think of that as an innovation vector. So I'd love to talk a little bit. I know you've got some good examples here of how acquisition really can be an innovation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I'm going to sort of be more generous with the word acquisition. We can acquire or we can partner. Mm, and I yeah, think they both achieve the same outcome, although probably the economies are much more attractive after the acquire thing. So what we're looking to do is usually capture some kind of adjacent product to secure our position in our main market. So although it may not be our main business, we're going to partner with a company or we're going to, like, for example, I used to work with a company and we're in a space that's all about designing uh, enterprise architectures. We partnered with a company that dealt with the life cycle of products. Because one of the big things when you're an enterprise architect is understanding when your IT infrastructure is going out of date, out of support and things like that. So having that data, thousands and thousands of mm. life cycles for thousands and thousands of products was difficult to get. We'd tried it. We'd failed miserably at it. We'd, we'd got a bunch of students in to try and scrape websites for summer and it ended up miserably. So we partnered with a company specifically to do it. Now, at some later point, it could have ended up an acquisition. But I look at that Main Street innovation as a way of 
creating more protective defensive barriers mm. for your main product. If there's holes in your defensive wall, can we shore them up with acquisitions or can we shore them up with partnerships? I'll juxtapose that with another way of acquisition integration, which is particularly for large companies I've seen. And again, Cisco is a great example of this. Many large companies recognize they're terrible at innovating. Mm. At like mm-hmm. net new products is yep. the bureaucracy and the, the, the culture is just not conducive to agile and taking risks and things like that. So what they do is simply they go and look out in the market and say, who's innovating? Well, let them go ahead and innovate. And oftentimes they make the acquisition and keep them as a separate company. You know what I mean? The ownership structures at the top, but they don't want to interdict any kind of innovation, you know, spirit that's going on there before they roll in. And that's another great example, I think, of, of Main Street innovation with your product portfolio. You bring up a really good point there too, because you know, it's wonderful to say we should innovate, but often, you know, there's the challenges of figuring out how to do it, but then there is the challenges of making it a reality and an established company who's really used to thinking, measuring, selling, like everything for an established product, right? I mean, it's really difficult if you're, if you're trying to go outside there, the economic expectations, what makes it, you know, is it even worth our time if it's only X, all of those things of doing innovation in an established organization makes it, can be difficult. So I yes, can see absolutely. where acquiring someone who already has the lab and the process and it's not going to be bogged down is interesting for sure. And I think with the exception of very few large companies, of course, Apple springs to mind, mm-hmm. many large companies take that acquisition approach. I mean, you look at IBM, you, you look at Oracle, you look at any of these big companies, they, they make dozens of acquisitions, you know, all, all the time they're making acquisitions, yep. many times unnoticed. Because they acknowledge that that's not what their, she's afraid phrase, distinctive competency is. We're, yeah. we're not great at innovating. And that's a bit, you know, we just acknowledge that and that's okay. It's hard, right? It's kind of hard to admit to yourself sometimes. It feels like, oh, yeah, but we are, yeah. we are great yeah. at maintaining a cash cow of a business that's generating mm-hmm. all this money that allows us to make that acquisition. Yeah. And it's okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And the other thing I think was interesting that when we think about acquisitions, there's those type, but the, the first type, Thinking about acquisitions that expand the value we deliver to our core super users and customers, right? I think is a great way of thinking about it. Really, like, how do I deliver more value to them and the jobs, even if it's a somewhat tangential, especially yes. attractive because you already have a relationship with those customers and some level of trust, hopefully, right? Yeah. So I think that can be a really fun way of looking at acquisitions and where you get Absolutely, some of the more... Yeah strategic ones that at first you're like, oh, oh, I see how that fits. Absolutely. In fact, I was struck by, I went to a, you know, the ABM company, Sixth Sense, a great, great company, right? I went to an ABM, sorry, a Sixth Sense show a couple of years, it was three years ago now. I wouldn't even say it was right at the beginning of COVID, I think. I don't know. It's a long time. It's, it's back in the midst of time. But they had just made up an acquisition of a Zoom Info type company, right? Mm. They had this huge database of all these different things. It really is surprising to me, but then I thought about it, that makes absolute sense. That's making a one plus one equals three, superimposing that capability, that data set on top of the core function of ABM was fantastic. And also as well, prevented or, or rather secured their customers from perhaps going out to another vendor who had a similar offering. Mm. Um, so that was a great example of it. But then they acquired that in as well. They acquired that. Well, case. and as you talked about too, with your organization, like, building that kind of data, it's not a small feat, right? So More you're having a, your classic buy, build or partner discussion in there or buy, you know, there's, you can see where it would be attractive. Yeah. And of course, many companies also take the approach of I'm going to partner and then I'm going to build. I'm going to partner to mitigate risk. Yep. I'm going to partner to learn. 
and then I'm going to build. You know, you may say yeah. that's, that's reprehensible, but there's a very legitimate strategy yeah. people use as well. And it can be partner to buy too, right? Partner and then go, well, let's actually, yeah. Yeah, let's test this before we we jump in. Yeah. So let's talk about decline, which is, I wish that, you know, when we're getting, when we're getting later, do you think of innovation in that stage as a way, is it like thinking of the Horizon 2 or Horizon 3 offering? Like, is it innovation thinking that I need to supplement my cash cow that's maybe drying up a little bit? Or is it thinking about how do I either build new life into this, right? How do I expand my SAM so that it's, you know, I take my market and I figure out somewhere else? Or how, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, there's a couple of examples that spring to mind. And I, I was actually talking to my brother recently, he was in the UK and he, he was in the telecoms business for, for many years. And he's telling me about a company that managed, believe it or not, dial-up modems oh. for consumers. And I'm thinking, dial-up modems? They, still, we exist. In, they still exist. <laughs> there's a very specific segment of the market, usually the older generation, who've had that dial-up modem for a long time. It suits them just fine for the email work that they do and that sort of stuff. And they've no intention of changing it. The way they want to secure those, they want to keep that revenue stream yeah. going on. And, and Rebecca, it's not like nothing. I mean, it's like 20 or 30 pounds a month for this. this yeah. Cool. You know, but it's just that they, they don't need anything more and it works and it ain't broke. Don't fix it. We're going to yep. keep this, yep. this dial-up modem. So that's absolutely fine. So then there's very minor incremental innovations, but they don't want to do anything too disruptive because I think when you've got that kind of segment of the marketplace, yeah. Yeah, yeah. very, very disruptive. Change is no good. <laughs> Well, a chance to say, well, you know what, now this is all changing. Maybe I should look at something mm -hmm, else mm -hmm. sort of thing. But there are certain situations, again, I remember consulting with the company and they had a big problem, which was their entire solution was built to be premise-based software. There was no jury rigging it to make it SaaS. It was premise-based. They were certainly building cloud-based solution, but the challenge they were facing is there was still a migration needed. And this is sort of the classic innovation mm -hmm. solution. So when I go to your backer and say, hey, that prem-based software, you know what? That's now our maintenance. That's going to end of life. We'll keep that going, but all the new stuff's going to go in the cloud. And uh, that's my, I'm just moving you to a net new product at that point. Even though the functionality is the same, I'm absolutely mm -hmm. making up to the switching costs, retraining, migrating data. And therein lies the challenge of that kind of innovation is that you might, I say, well, you know what? While I'm about it, I might as well shop around and go out for RFI yep. or RFP again. Because I'm going to take the hit on the switching costs. It doesn't matter whether it's you or anyone else. Mm -hmm. Very risky. And of course, if you don't make that move, you can sometimes end up with you know, a dead product that uh, you've yeah. been able to move across to. I mean, and that again is the risk of there's lots of opportunity and innovation and there is not a small amount of risk as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I both have a, a very big soft spot for marketing. So let's talk about marketing innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I got to say what comes to mind is Apple. Let's think about mm. that. I think when they service their following, a lot of it through to marketing and the brand and the image that they present. But I even think with smaller companies now, and I, I was starting to do some writing on this. I'm, I'm one of the many articles I've got in play at any one time that I've not managed to finish is I was positing that a company's evaluation of your product begins the moment they hit your website or the moment they have a marketing experience with you. Mm. These things are not abstract. They're not separate. If they have a terrible marketing and sales experience, you're probably not going to chance, even you might have the best product in the world, you're not going to have a chance of getting their business. So I think marketing is by no means separate for product. When I think of product, I think product with a big P, I think whole product. I think your marketing motion, 
your sales motion, how you present yourself, your thought leadership, everything goes mm-hmm. into a company's evaluation of you as an organization. And so marketing has been a huge part to play in that. I'll give you one example I had. So a few years ago, I was consulting for a company and they were asked me to evaluate a particular piece of software. So I, don't even, I think it was some kind of, it was like a Sana or a Trello. I was looking at a bunch of those different ones. And I had the chance to go out to about 15 different companies and I wanted to schedule a demo. That's all I wanted to do is I wanted to schedule a demo. And Rebecca, I tell you what, the range oh. of experiences oh, gosh, that yes. I had. That's so true. All the way from a painful, torturous email exchange over the course of five weeks, trying to set up a discovery call. And they actually had the, I can't even believe they used this phrase, is we need to set up a qualification call first. And, you know, I'm a marketeer, Rebecca, so I'm like, I get it, you've got to qualify me, but don't tell me you're qualified. Right, yeah. <laughs> tell me something else. Tell me <laughs> something else, but not that, because now I feel like <laughs> I might not be good enough for you. <laughs> So, so don't tell me you qualified me, even though I know you qualified me, because that's what I did. So that was the horrible five. And eventually we got the call set up and, and pretty much it was a shambles because all that discovery they'd done seemed to be completely ignored by the sales engineer. Oh. No oh. idea. Do you know what I mean? What, what, yeah. where, oh. coming, why you didn't have discovery if the sales engineer just gave me a vanilla demo? What was the point of that? To another company where I had the experience, I got to schedule myself online that day when I was doing the research. The response back is that, well, we want a quick 10 minute call so we can get the demo set up with your eyes. So then go charging into the demo. Two days later, I had a 10 minute call. That's all it was. It was very clear they were qualifying me at this point. What's important to you? What's your decision criteria? Who's involved? All those discussions, right? And then a week later, I had that booked in and the sales engineer was fully informed. What a just night and day yeah. experience. Yep. You notice in that entire diatribe there, I didn't want to talk about whether one product was better than the other. Didn't matter. No, didn't you would matter. never buy that first one. If you right? did, if, if, if you five just, weeks, yeah. Mm-hmm. What does that say about you and your company and your support and your product and your attention to me? So yeah, mar- marketeers have a lot to say in whether or not companies are successful beyond just, you know, it's not just generating nice adverts in Canva and popping them on LinkedIn. It's so much more than that, right? Right. And just that, the, to your point, the simplicity of onboarding, the simplicity of discovery that I can do myself really does. It sets up the whole feeling of my product. I think of this like Southwest did a great job when they they sort of started to talk about their differences and their humanness compared to others. And it you bring that expectation to when you're on the plane. Now they don't always deliver that on the plane, but yeah. right. But I mean, you, you almost, you like, you get a bit of a benefit of the doubt, right? You get a bit of like, I bet this is going to be good. And you as a product, you know, as the product stuff doesn't have to fight against the oh, this thing is always a pain. It makes a huge amount of difference. Another place I know that we've talked about is kind of related to marketing is packaging, right? Yeah. And you you talk about Adobe a little bit. So I think if you could talk a little bit about their innovation, I think it's another great example of, and this like build something different, but I yeah. rethought how I presented it. Absolutely. I think how you package, how you present, and, and probably at a more meta level, how you structure mm. your portfolio is a key part as well of innovation. You know, we go to all this effort of building this range of different products, but yet when we present them out, we package them out to the market. People don't see the connections between the two. In fact, I was just talking to a potential pragmatic customer recently, and they're saying, we've got all these different products and they absolutely go together and you get that one plus one equals three effect. But we can't articulate that from a marketing mm. perspective. We don't see why this plus that is better than buying those two unique products from two different vendors. 
And uh, that's all in packaging and presentation. And I mean, we've not even talked about price structuring and contract negotiation and support and one throat to choke and all those good things as well. But yeah, packaging innovation, particularly when you've got a portfolio of offerings. It means so many companies I've seen, I know you've probably had the same experience. It's the moment you go to their web property, it's immediately evident they've grown by acquisition. Mm, mm -hmm, And it mm -hmm. looks like six completely different companies. The language is different. The words are different. The tone they use is different. Everything is different. And so I'm like saying, well, and then they saw, they saw buying on about the great portfolio offering. Well, that doesn't look like a package offering to me. That looks like six different companies you've bought that you just, and then there may be some beautiful integration story underneath, but at the packaging level, I couldn't tell you that. Yeah. And so, you know, and it's, you don't you lose all that sort of economies effect there of that one plus one equals three effect. So I think when we think about stepping back, the, all the things we've talked about, right? It's understanding the problem internally you're trying to solve, how your organization is thinking about growth, what your customers are trying to solve and where your products are. Yeah. And then making sure you think about the whole ecosystem of ways you can innovate, right? That you're not just thinking, let me make sure I get AI in or let me, you know, there is a, you know, let's throw everything out and start over. That'll be innovative, right? There are a lot of different vectors to think about and examine to determine what is the right place for innovation. And I would think that this is work and conversations and a thought process that you would want to make visible in the organization, right? Because I think otherwise what could happen, like we're going to innovate by packaging. They're going to be like, that's not innovative. And you're like, "Mm." you you absolutely structure it. And I was thinking today, what's a good, because whenever I teach, I always like to put accessible consumer examples in there that we all Mm -hmm, understand. mm -hmm. I was trying to think of this, what's an accessible analogy for innovation? And it's like, my family's going to go on vacation next year. Now, one, we could get into our car in Austin, Texas and just start driving, right? And a couple of days, you'll get out of Texas. It's perfect. A couple of days, we'll get out of Texas. <laughs> we'll end up where we're going to end up, right? Sometimes I think that's what people think innovation is. Let's just start mm. driving. Let's see where yep. we end. I, I think that's not the right thing. So <laughs> first of all, let's catalog all the different vacation experiences that we could have. We could have an all-inclusive. We could have an activity one. We could go and tour European cattle, you know, whatever that catalog of the different vacations we could have. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first step. Now let's inspect it. Well, there's certain things that my family want out of that, right? There's certain realities that I've got myself, think of my my, my wife, my kids, all that sort of stuff. There's certain things we want to inspect that by. We've got a duration. Maybe that's another way. We've got a, a budget. Maybe that's another way. Mm. So I, I, I want to see the nouns are changing here, but the verbs stay the same as we're analyzing what journey we could take through some kind of framework. In much the same way we think of innovation as a journey, first of all, we catalog those innovation vectors. Again, using the travel analogy, we're going to north, south, east, west, because we could go anywhere around 360 degrees. Let's, let's think about which way we could go. And now let's analyze them from how we intend to grow what the outcome our customers are trying to achieve and where our market is in terms of its, its maturation, where, where our market is in terms of is it early pre-chasm, is it Main Street, is it Laggard? And I think if you have that, you'll have a much better sense of how you should innovate, just like we as consumers have a mm-hmm. much better sense of, are we going to Mexico for a week at an all-inclusive or are we going to spend two weeks, you know, going up and down the Danube on a boat or something in between, right? I mean, right. those both sound delightful, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, well, we talked about a ton of different stuff related to innovation today. If you were going to have our listeners do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would that be? I think the first thing would be inspect how you're planning to innovate right now and ask yourself the question, why are we innovating in that way? What what led Mm. us to innovate? Mm. It may not be, I'm not saying it's wrong, but there's going to be some rationale. So that might give you some initial threads on what innovation vectors that is important to you. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is to set up a innovation framework, an innovation assessment framework. You know what, Rebecca, just like when we have line items in backlogs of stories we're going to work Mm -hmm. against and we score them and things like that on weighted scorecards, you can use exactly the same approach when it comes to innovation. You can say what innovation vectors are important to us. Now let us score the different ones based on uh, what's important to us as an organization. Weighted scorecard technique will work just fine for that. Awesome. Well, as always, delightful to chat with you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing sort of your insights. We will post a link to your article because there's a whole lot more goodies in there. But we really appreciate you coming up today. Thanks so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.